Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. I too am not Pastor Adam, although we have often actually been mistaken as brothers before. So, um, but, uh, but I'm thankful to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Um, you, if you have your note sheets in front of you, you can see what the passage is that we're going to be studying this morning. And that's Psalm 63. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm 63. And if you are able, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. I don't normally do this, but uh, Psalm 63 is near and dear to my heart. And I think this psalm is well worthy of standing before the Lord for. I will be reading for the, from the uh, Legacy Standard Bible this morning. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land without water. Thus I have beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will laud you. Thus I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with fatness and richness, and my mouth offers praises with lips of joyful songs. When I, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it, they will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a portion for foxes, but the king will be glad in God. Everyone who swears by him will boast, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be closed. Heavenly Father, we pray, O oh God, that you would illumine our minds to your word this morning. Help us to grasp the deep the, the, the depths of this psalm and the heights of this message this morning that you are going to bring to our hearts. Help us to believe it, help us to trust it, help us to press into it with all of our hearts this morning. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Just one word, one word. It's easy to overlook some of you probably don't even remember me reading it. But this one word is the word that could very well be so unnoticeable to you, but it is actually the most important word in this powerful psalm that we're going to look at this morning. All of Psalm 63 hangs on this one word. Its message is shaped by it. Its theology is guided by it. Its application is influenced by it. What word am I talking about? It's the word wilderness. Wilderness. You're like, wilderness? Where's wilderness? I don't remember reading that anywhere in the psalm. Oh, it's there. This word's there. 
it's so easy to miss because it's actually not in the psalm itself. It's the body of the psalm. It's in its heading. Did you catch it there? A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Psalm headings are so easy to gloss over, aren't they? We often just kind of skip by them and rush by them, right? But psalm headings are actually there for a reason. They're a part of the biblical text. They are inspired by God just as much as every word of this psalm. Psalm headings are there for a reason. Not every psalm actually gives us a heading. And even those that actually give us a heading, very few actually go beyond telling us who the author of the psalm is or maybe what kind of style of music that it was composed for it. Very few actually give us any indication about what is actually going on behind the scenes. So, so when you see in Psalm 63 that there's more than just a, 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 a heading of authorship, but there's a description of what's going on in the background, you know it's a big deal, don't you? It's a big deal. And even though it's really not that much to go on, it's just simply that David's in the wilderness of Judah. That's it. That actually tells us all we need to know, though. David doesn't tell us specifically where he is in Judah's wilderness, where he's located. That's not important. David doesn't even tell us why he's in the wilderness in the first place. There are really only two periods of David's life where he was in the wilderness for a period of time like this. One earlier in his life, when he was, uh, before he was king, when he was fleeing from Saul, and the other later in his life, after he had become king, when he ran away from his son Absalom. But whichever situation it is, and scholars uh, go back and forth on which one it is, it's actually not that relevant to know which one. It's not. No, rather, David actually keeps this very vague on purpose. He's just in the wilderness. That's all you need to know. That's all that matters. Because that one word, wilderness, all by itself, actually sets the tone for what we're about to learn right here in Psalm 63 this morning. So what is it about this word that, that makes it so special? To us, the wilderness just sounds, sounds like a hot, dry, uncomfortable place to be, right? And it certainly is. I think we're all too familiar with wilderness in Southern California, right? We've been blessed with a lot of rain lately, so it's, it's been nice, but summer's coming, guys. <laughs> it's gonna get hot. So that's just, that's the reality that we live in. We have an awareness of the wilderness. We live in that in one sense. But you have to see that the Bible in the Bible, the wilderness is so much more than just some inconvenient climate. The wilderness was actually a common place people found themselves in the Bible, and, and as such, the wilderness carries with it a lot of history. It brings to mind a lot of memories. And places tend to do that for us. For those of you guys who are married, uh, if you were to visit the place where you had your first date, a rush of memories and emotions probably flood back into your mind, right? It's no different with the wilderness in, in, this, in the Bible here. The wilderness is a common pit stop for so many people in Scripture, and what you find in all these situations is that the wilderness has developed a kind of reputation. The wilderness gives off a certain vibe or an impression. What kind of place is the wilderness known for in the Bible? The wilderness is always remembered as a place 
of testing. It's a place of testing. For example, listen to what God says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, at, at the end of their 40 years of living in the wilderness. And you shall remember all the way which Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. See that there? Or listen to what Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says about Jesus, about his time in the wilderness. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. See that there? Those are the kinds of memories that the word wilderness evokes when you read wilderness here at the beginning of Psalm 63. The wilderness is a place of testing. In the wilderness, people are put under the microscope. In the wilderness, people are pushed to their limits. In the wilderness, you find out who you really are. What's in the heart comes to the surface and what really matters to someone is finally revealed. That's what the wilderness does. That's what it's actually meant to do. This is why people even describe dark moments in their lives, their own lives, as as what? A wilderness experience. You ever heard that before? Whether they know it or not, the analogy that they're using actually comes directly from the Bible. The wilderness wilderness is a time of trial and difficulty. And when, when, when you're struggling in life in one form or another, therefore, it's not inaccurate for you to say, I'm in the wilderness right now. That's a true statement. It's a very biblical statement. Some of you are in the wilderness right now. You walked in to these, through these doors this morning and your head's spinning and you don't know what to do. You're, you're kind of at the brink. What am I gonna do? How am I gonna make it one step further? I don't know how I can move on. Maybe you just learned that a loved one is terminally ill. Maybe you just received devastating news that you need to move out of your place right away and you have nowhere else to go. I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe you can't afford to live in the wilderness of Southern California anymore, right? Maybe you feel hopelessly overwhelmed by temptation as though all of hell is bearing down on you. I don't know. Maybe. Whatever it is, it's a wilderness. And you struggle to make sense of it. You don't know how to move forward. If you're in that spot this morning, I've got some news for you that you might be surprised to hear. Good. Good? Good. Good. What do you mean good? That doesn't make any sense. That's not good. That's hard. That's impossible. No. That you are exactly where you need to be. God is the one who has put you in this wilderness. That's not by accident. Like, how do, I, how do you know that, James? How can you be sure of that? Did you hear the words of Matthew chapter 4, verse 1? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. If Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tempted, how much more can we be led by the Lord himself 
to be tested as well. God puts you here. You need to know that. He has a purpose in it all. There's an important lesson he wants you to learn. You see, it's in these wilderness moments where God makes you feel how vulnerable you really are, how desperate you really are, how needy you really are. The wilderness brings you to your breaking point. The wilderness puts you in a place where you have absolutely nowhere to go. You're stuck gasping for air, and that's exactly where you need to be. And it's in that helpless moment you learn really fast what really matters in this world, don't you? You find out what your greatest need really is. You discover that all the things you once held dear in your life, they they mean absolutely nothing. All the relationships you once pursued, all the comforts you once relied on, all the pleasures you once craved, all the things that you thought were truly successful and meaningful, they don't mean squat. They just don't you finally see that there's really only one thing that you really need. You need God. You need God. Just him. That's why God puts you in this wilderness. As dark as it it may look, as miserable as it may feel, as hopeless as it may seem, God is hedging your way to lead you directly to him. He wants you to feel with every part of your being that God is and has always been your greatest need. No, scratch that. Your only need. And guess what? That's what Psalm 63 is all about. When your back is against the wall and you don't know where to turn, Psalm 63 is for you. And its message to you is quite simply this. God is all you need. If you take away nothing else from this sermon this morning, please take away that. It's just five little words. God is all you need. I think the title of the sermon there is All You Need. You can just probably just write God is right in front of there. So it's actually really only two words you can just write down. So He really is though. That's, that's not just some kind of Christian, cute Christian catchphrase that you'll find you know, plastered on something at Hobby Lobby, right? No. Yahweh really is my shepherd. I don't lack anything. Period. That's real. And the way Psalm 63 is going to show us this is by giving us three reasons God is all you need, okay? Three reasons. And they'll be very simple, okay? They'll be very simple. So so we're going to try to make this sermon as simple as possible for you this morning. The first reason God is all you need is this. God is all satisfying. God is all satisfying. If you're taking notes this morning, that is your first point. God is all satisfying. And David shows us this in verses one through five of our psalm, which we just read a little bit ago. God is all satisfying. And if God is all satisfying, then he's really all that you need. That's the logic. But how do these verses relay this message to us? Well, verses one through five walk us through what I kind of Say, what claim here is three stages of, what's, of what someone satisfied by God looks like, okay? There's really three phases or three stages that we're going to walk through, okay? So let's look at stage one. Stage one is this, and this is in verses one through two, and that's pre-satisfaction. This is what it looks like before you're actually satisfied, okay? 
satisfactions. Stage one, that's in verses one through two, pre-satisfaction. This is what you can expect someone to look like before they're satisfied by God. Uh, Satisfaction doesn't come by accident. It starts with an insatiable appetite for God where nothing else will satisfy that appetite but who? But him. And so verse one begins, as we read earlier, O God, you are my God. How badly does David want to be satisfied by God? He has made God his God, no one else. See that there? This is very personal. This is very exclusive. God is, or David is saying, God, you are my God. David's not looking anywhere else. He's made sure nothing else captivates his attention. No one else controls his affection. Why? because he feels certain that God is the only one who can satisfy him. And then he continues, I shall seek you earnestly. So how badly does David want to be satisfied by God? Well, he's also earnestly seeking God. He's not holding anything back. He's not not given a half-hearted effort. He's all in, he's running full steam after God so he can find him. He's in the wilderness right now and it's as if he's overturning every single rock so he can find who? God. He's just, he's, he's just he, he, he has to find him. That's his attitude there. But there's more here. He goes on and says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you. How badly does David want to be satisfied by God? Well, he also, it's also that his soul and his flesh thirst for God. Every part of him, soul and body, inside and outside, is longing for God, is yearning for him. Why? Because he's persuaded that God alone can satisfy all his inner and outer cravings. He's convinced about that. But here's the kicker of the verse. This is the, This is the thing that turns it, like, makes it even bigger. Look at the end there. He says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you, in a dry and weary land without water. I'm afraid that you read something different when I just read that to you. I'm afraid you probably read to yourself, my soul thirsts for you, God, just like someone thirsts for water in the wilderness. But that's not what he said. That's not what he said. What did he say there, actually? He said, I'm thirsting for you, O God, in a place where I should be thirsting for what? Water. Whoa. In other words, David's desire for God isn't on par or comparable to thirsting for water. What is he saying? It's greater. He's like, I'm in the wilderness. I should be thirsting for water, but what am I thirsting for? God, that's how we know he's ready to be satisfied by God. See that there? He's actually come to the place where he longs for God more than the most basic necessity of life when he needs that necessity the most. That's crazy. But why did he do that? Because he he believes without a shadow of a doubt, again, that God alone satisfied. He's 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 all he needs. The wilderness is built to nurture pre-satisfaction in you. 
is meant to wean you off the appetites of this world and cultivate a craving for the only one who can really satisfy. If you think the wilderness is a bad thing, think again. Think again. The wilderness is where every worldly affection goes to die. Your wilderness is not something to be afraid of. It's something to actually be cherished. And you will learn to cherish it if God permits because it will bring you face to face with what your soul and body need more than anything, which is him. But David's not done with stage one yet. There's more to pre-satisfaction. In verse two, David transport us back, back in, transports us back in time to a moment in his life when he was back home in Jerusalem, out of the wilderness and back in the comforts of his palace. And he says about this moment in verse two, thus I have beheld you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Long before David was in the wilderness, he used to visit the temple, with an, or the, the, not the temple, but the tabernacle, with this eager ex, the same eager expectation to be satisfied by God. He used to make trips to the tabernacle to see God and be satisfied in him in the same way that he wants to be satisfied by him in the wilderness. And in what way was David hoping God would satisfy him specifically? Well, the verse says he was specifically looking to see God's power and his glory. Okay, that's important. I think it makes sense to us that the tabernacle is a place where you can see the glory of God, right? The glory of the, God, uh, the, the, glory of the Lord fills the temple, fills the tabernacle. But David didn't just go to the tabernacle to see God's glory. He also went to see what? God's power. What does he mean by that? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I think about the tabernacle, power isn't the first word that comes to mind, you know? I mean, maybe ornate, right? Because of all the golden utensils everywhere and everything. Perhaps gory, right? Because of all the slaughter of sheep, yeah? Not power. What's powerful about an oversized tent, you know? What's that gonna do? And this is where a careful study of the tabernacle, what it stands for and what it means is very, very helpful. You see, the tabernacle was not just a physically beautiful structure. Every station and instrument had meaning and purpose assigned to it. To help you understand this, let me share by way of illustration, okay? 15 years ago, I got a chance to visit uh, one of the most famous archeological museums in the world called the, the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. In that museum, I had the opportunity to see a lot of neat artifacts. There were a lot of large clay pots, tablets, statues, and things like that, right? You can imagine that. You've probably seen it on you know, National Geographic or something like that, or you've gone to something like that yourself, a museum. Um, and it's pretty cool, right? But it's all meant to be a relaxing a stroll through a, a giant building just to satisfy your intellectual curiosity. However, Several weeks before I went to that Egyptian museum, I also visited another museum, this time in Israel. Only this wasn't an archeological museum. This was a Holocaust museum. Now, the Holocaust museum by its very nature is meant to serve a very different purpose than the Egyptian museum. Um, its purpose is not so much to, much to show off cool relics. Instead, it's meant to tell a powerful story. Picture after picture, 
video after video, display after display, all carefully arranged in one place to share a serious message about the evils of the Holocaust. The tabernacle is not like the Egyptian museum where you can go see cool antiques. You know, oh, they've got an altar that I can look at, that's cool. You know, or, or you know, they've got a, spe- a, uh, a special, like, Holy of Holies exhibit, that's neat, you know. No, it's more like a Holocaust museum. It's meant to tell a powerful story. As you walk into the tabernacle, you'd hear the bleeding of sheep and rams. You'd see the slitting of animals' throats. You'd hear the washing of hands and utensils. You'd smell the aroma of animals burnt on the, on the altars. And what was the point of all that? It was meant to tell you a powerful story. It was intended to send a glorious message David went into the tabernacle to stare at God so he could learn more about that powerful story so that he could visualize what that glorious message was and what story is being told that's so powerful, what message is being sent that's so glorious. Verse three leads us to stage two here, which is satisfaction. We've moved from pre-satisfaction to satisfaction. In verse three now, we see this. We see this powerful story come to light, this glorious message come to pass. What is it that truly makes God all satisfying? Here in verse three, we actually catch a glimpse. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will lodge you. What is it that makes God so satisfying? What puts him head and shoulders above all other delights? Why does he alone deserve so much attention, affection, and adoration, and nothing else does? The verse says here, because your loving kindness, O God, is better than life. That's why my lips will lodge you, and no one else. That's why my heart runs to you, and nothing else. It is, it is that God's loving kindness is better than life. That's the answer. That's what makes God all satisfying. And so the question you should be asking yourself is, what does that mean? (laughs) What does it mean that God's loving kindness is better than life? I hate to disappoint you, but David doesn't really tell us right here. He just says that it has to do with God's loving kindness being better than life. And he just leaves you there. That's that, and that's why I said in Psalm 63, uh, about Psalm 63, verse three here, that it gives us a glimpse of the answer, not the answer in its entirety. Instead, David has decided to slowly reveal the answer to this question over the course of this psalm. He doesn't show all his cards right away. And so I'm actually gonna do the same thing. But I'm not gonna uh, tell you the answer. I'm gonna wait a little bit longer. I'm gonna make you wait a little bit longer and give you the answer a little bit later when it actually comes in its fullness. And I think in so doing, I think you'll really appreciate it all the more. Um, A theater audience enjoys a movie so much more if the plot is revealed slowly, don't they? A hiker appreciates the mountain view so much more after he has made his treacherous climb to the top. I think you'll find the answer to our question so much sweeter after taking this journey with me through this psalm all the way through. After all, isn't that what the wilderness does? 
It makes you appreciate God's rescue all the more only after having waited in the wilderness for so long. Why is David prolonging the answer? Because he's simulating what is your your experience in the wilderness. And he's saying, hang in there. You'll get to the end and you'll see it. But for now, just know, God is all satisfying because his loving kindness is better than life, whatever that means, okay? Got it? All right. Third and final stage, post-satisfaction. So we had pre-satisfaction, satisfaction, now we have post-satisfaction, verses four and five, and we'll run through this real quick. He says, thus I will bless you as long as I live. What does it mean to bless God? Blessing is always a, a response towards God's blessing of you. That's what it is. Another word, another word for that would be giving thanks. It's giving thanks. And so satisfaction in God always leads us to giving thanks to God. Verse four continues, I will lift up my hands in your name. To lift up the hands is another form of praising God, but, but uh, may, may, maybe, we're in, um, maybe not in the way we're used to thinking about it. Um, think about it actually, uh, the illustration of like a toddler on Easter. We just had Easter, right? And there's like, you know, some parent dresses up in one of those creepy bunny costumes, you know? And, and, the, and the kid sees it, right? And even the adults are scared by it. They're like, oh my goodness, what is that thing? Um, and, they, and the kid gets scared, right? And runs to mommy, and then what does the kid do? Right? Like, pick me up, help me. I, I'm so independent upon you right now. That's what it means to lift the hands to God. That's what it means. It's not just like praising God, although I sure, certainly that's part of it, but it's I need you. Help, right? And that's what's going on here. Satisfaction in God always leads to complete dependence on God. Verse five, my soul is satisfied as with fatness and richness. Um, This is kind of interesting language. Um, We just saw the tabernacle back in verse two and it's actually, the tabernacle is is kind of uh, appearing here in this verse with those words fatness and richness. Fatness, if you don't know, refers to the fatty portions of the animal that was cooked on the altar. That's what that refers to. And then the richness refers to the ashes that were burned up and discarded after the sacrifice. Now that may not sound very appetizing to you. It's like, oh, that's weird. What's going on there? But you have to understand that in their time and context, the fat portions of the animal were the best parts but these were always burned up as an offering to God to show your devotion to God, to say, God, I'm giving you my best. You get the best. But what does David say here? This is interesting. As with fatness and richness, my soul will be satisfied. David's like, that's my portion too. So what is the fatness and the richness he's talking about? Well, guess. It's God, right? It's God. He's like, I get to share in that too. So satisfaction in God always leads to perfect contentment in God. And then verse five finishes with this. And my mouth offers praises with lips of joyful songs. Uh, This one's just very, very simple. Satisfaction in God always leads to excessive joy in God. So this is is what it looks like to to, to be satisfied in God. When you finally reach its its apex. It starts with an insatiable hunger for God. It reaches a place of feasting on God in verse three. And then in verses four and five, it finishes with a satisfied soul in God. 
When you choose to locate all your satisfaction in God, you will take that first step in understanding this one important truth that God is really all you need. He is. You don't have to have a successful job or a beautiful spouse. You don't need to have the applause of others or to be the next influencer, right? You just need who? God. Why? Because he's all satisfying. Somehow, some way, even though we don't know exactly how yet, God is all satisfying. And these five verses paint for us a portrait of what it looks like to be satis- all satisfied by God. But we want more, don't we? Like, come on, like, give me some more. Well, there's more to the psalm, so you're in luck. Second reason, God is all you need. God is all sufficient. God is all sufficient. This is what we find in verses six through eight. What do I mean God is all sufficient? I mean God is everything you depend on. You count on him for everything. We just saw a glimpse of that. Well, David's gonna unpack this a little bit more for us. And you can tell right out of the gate in verse six that David himself has come to that place where he fully depends on God. In this verse, we learn what it looks like for God to be all sufficient for you. What does that, what does that really look like? What's the characteristics there? Look how he talks about himself in verse six. He says this. I need to turn the page of my Bible backwards, sorry. Verse six. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Notice how intensive David's dependence goes. When I remember you on my bed. The biblical word for remember is quite different than the way we use the word remember today. When we talk about remembering, it's because we forgot something. Oh, I forgot about that errand I gotta go run, right? But I remember it now, right? That's not actually how the Bible talks about remembrance. Remembrance in scripture is the idea that you only have one thing on your mind. You are concentrating on just one thing and you've pushed out everything else. And that's what's going on here. David so depends on God that he cannot stop thinking about him. He cannot stop thinking about him. And he does this on his bed. The assumption here is that David can't sleep. I probably wouldn't be able to either if I was you know, running for my life in the wilderness and having to sleep on a rock or something like that, right? But it's more than that. There's the, uh, it's not so much just that he's worried and concerned. That's true, and that's part of the reason probably why he's not sleeping. But it's that he's what? What's the focus of this passage? That he's thinking about who? God. He's meditating on God. Right? Because he knows he depends entirely on him. So this is a very intensive, intensive dependence that David has. But it's not just intensive, it's also extensive. Notice how extensive his dependence goes as well. I meditate on you in the night watches. Uh, Far from the mystical connotations that the word meditation has in our culture today, uh, meditation is not emptying your mind. Please understand that. Please don't buy into that. That's just not true. That's not what meditation is in in scripture anywhere. You empty your mind, you're, you're in for a world of hurt. No, what is meditation? It's the exact opposite. It is filling your mind with biblical truth. It is rehearsing it 
over and over and over again until it becomes like clockwork in your soul. That's meditation. And that's what David's doing here. He's meditating over and over and over again on who God is, what he's done, what his promises are that he's going to fulfill. And he does this, notice this, in the night watches. Back in David's time, the night watch, uh, the, the nighttime was broken up into three parts and each part was called a night watch. And these night watches each lasted four hours apiece, totaling 12 hours of the evening side of a full day, full 24-hour day, okay? If that made sense. Hopefully that makes sense to you. But. And David is meditating on God, it says here, not for a night watch, but for night watches, plural. He's using all the night hours to meditate on God. Whoa. Wow. Why, David? Why not try to get a little sleep? Isn't that a better use of your time? You're in danger. You're running for your life. You need your strength. Not for David. This is how extensively he depends on God. That no matter what situation he finds himself in, no matter what time of the day it is, he depends on God. It spans all time, not just when it's convenient. How can David put so much confidence in God like that? Where did he learn to rely on God that much? Verses seven and eight tell us. Notice what it says. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Verse seven starts out, for you have been my help. What David is doing is he's recalling all the moments in his life that, that God had rescued him. And that's actually why I think probably that this psalm was written later in his life because by that point then David would have what? A mountain of things to reflect on that would last all night long, right? I mean, think about it. Um, God had delivered him from giant Goliath by this point. God had, had delivered him from homicidal Saul. God had delivered him from defiant Ishbosheth. Like, I don't even know who that is. Well, it's okay, you can look it up, right? There's so many things that God has delivered David from. We don't even know what all of them are. But David does, and he's reflecting on all of them. When David is rehearsing his mind over and over and over again on his bed, what he's doing there is he is reflecting on real life instances where God spared his life and gave him aid. And that's why it's taking all night. There's too much to recount. He depended on God to deliver him from his enemies in the past, and so he depends on God to deliver him from this wilderness in the present. And he really says, yeah, I can trust you in that. I can trust you in that. And so that's why he can't contain himself at the end of verse seven when he says, and in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. Right? Sounds nice. This is a loaded statement here, though. This is huge. With this statement, David is not just telling, talking about God's protection of him like, like a bird would over, over its youngling, putting its wing over top of him, but he's also um, reflecting on a verse all the way back in Exodus chapter 19, verse four, which says this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians 
and how I lifted you, Israel, up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What is that referring to? That's the Exodus. That's the Exodus. David is comparing his own situation to that of the Exodus. It's like, it's like a mini Exodus for him. He's saying that the God who valiantly and heroically lifted his own people out of Egypt on eagle's wings is the same God who what? Is sheltering me under those wings at this very moment. Do you really think the wilderness is too big for God now? He delivered an entire people from the world's greatest superpower in the world without like hardly lifting a finger. Is your wilderness too big for God? No, no. And so what does David do? He sings for joy. And you can learn to sing for joy too. And so what's the conclusion David comes to? Verse eight, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Mark this verse, highlight it, underline it, star, whatever you do in your Bible to, to mark stuff, okay? If you're like, I don't mark my Bible, well, mark it in, in your head then. Or write it down on a piece of paper or something, I don't know. This verse is so important. It is so critical. David has come to the place where he realizes God is the only one who upholds him. God is the only one he can rely on. And so what does he do? He clings to God with all of his might. He clings to God with all of his might. This is desperation. This is a man at the end of his rope. This is a person who has reached his breaking point. He has nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn. Nothing he used, used to depend on does anything for him. It's just God. It's God alone who carries David. God all along has brought him to this point, and so he knows God must be the one who can carry him all the way to the end. He cannot live without him. It is, a, it is a cry of desperation. The wilderness, ladies and gentlemen, is built to push you to this point. It makes you desperate. It takes away all the frivolities, all the pleasantries of life, all the things that you count on, all the things that you once held dear, and it makes you see them for what they really are. Useless, helpless, and it forces you to turn your attention to the one thing that really does make a difference, doesn't it? The beauty, beauty of the wilderness is that it brings you to the place where you can finally say, I depend on God for everything. I have to have him. I can't live without him. This is the battle cry of every believer. If you could like winnow down what is a believer? This is a good verse that describes what a believer is in some. My soul clings to you. Your right hand always upholds me. That's, that's what we say. And what's the verdict? He says, my, your right hand upholds me. We do have God. That's not just a wish anymore. That's not just, David doesn't just say, oh, I wish I had that. He says, no, I know that you uphold me. I know that you uphold me. God, you are completely dependable, fully trustworthy, absolutely faithful. 
And so now are you beginning to see a little more how God is all satisfying? Is the picture starting to get a little clearer? In part, it's because he's what? All sufficient. And if he's all, and if he's all sufficient, then he is all satisfying. And if he's all satisfying, then he really is all you need, right? Third and final reason, God is all you need. God is all saving. God is all saving. It just gets better and better as it goes here. And that's the intention. We learn this lesson from the last three verses of the psalm. This is the most fundamental reason out of the three. It's really the bedrock. It's what makes everything go. You want to really know why God is all you need? This is it. God is all saving. And David sets a table for this point in verses 9 and 10 by describing for us his need for salvation. You can, read, you can see it there in verse 9. He says, but those who seek to, my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a portion for foxes. Now, in these two verses, David gives us four descriptions about his dire situation. He kind of pulls uh, the curtain back just a little bit and helps us to see a little bit about what's going on. He doesn't tell us a lot, just enough for us to go on to learn a lesson here, okay? There's one negative description he makes, and then there's three positive descriptions that he makes, okay? That's important. He says negatively, the negative one, is that there are some people who are seeking to kill him. And then positively, he says that those same people will go into the depths of the earth, they will be delivered over to the power of the sword, and they will become a portion for foxes. Okay, those are all bad things. It's not good to be a portion for a fox, okay? Um, That 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 means you're dead and you're, never mind, I'm not gonna describe it for you. Um, David makes one comment about his problem, though. Just notice that. He makes one comment about his problem, but then he makes three comments about its solution. Now, you do the math. Which gets more attention? The problem or the solution? The solution, right? That makes sense. Now let me turn the tables for a moment. Which one generally gets more attention in your life? Oh, why did you do that? (laughs) Why did you meddle? Because David's meddling. Which one gets more attention in your life, the problem or the solution? Sometimes we can get so caught up in focusing on our own struggles, on our own sins, and we put so much emphasis on that problem, don't we? What does David do when he faces his struggles in the wilderness? Is he distracted by all the problems? No. For every one look at his problem, he's taking three looks at his solution. He's focused on the God who resolves his problem, not the problem itself. Now, David's not denying his problem. He gives actually one good statement to it, doesn't he? But he spends three more on what? The solution, and that's the point. I think that's an important lesson for us to learn. For every one look at your financial woes, take three looks at the eternal riches of Christ. For every one look at your poor health condition, take three looks at the glorified body that the Lord promises you in heaven one day. For every one look at your sin, take three looks at the cross to see that God has put that sin to death and you're forgiven. 
for every one look at your wilderness. Take three looks at God who will be faithful to lead you out of it. That's the kind of confidence you can have in the middle of the wilderness. And why can you have such confidence? Here's the last verse of the psalm, the best verse of all. It says this, but the king will be glad in God. Everyone who swears by him will boast, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be closed. At last, we finally reach the core. We've been drilling deeper and deeper into the issue of why God is all we need, and we've struck gold. This is it. This is the key. This is what it means for God to be all-saving and why then it makes him all we would ever need. David says, but the king will be glad in God. That is a statement that I cannot stress enough. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> What's so big about that? At first glance, it appears to be uh, David is talking about himself here, right? The king, me, David, I will be glad in God. But this can't be talking about David. It can't. Here's why. If David wanted to talk about himself, what would, he, what would he have done? Exactly what he's already done the entire psalm. Just use the word I, right? But I will be glad in God, right? That's what he would have said. But he says, no, the king. The king will be glad in God. Who's the king then? Who's the king? You can actually see who it is very clearly if you glance back a page or so in your Bible to Psalm 61, verse five. Go ahead and look there. This is interesting. Look at verse five of Psalm 61. It says, for you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. That's David. He said, and notice how he's talking about himself. Me, my, right? But look at verse six now. He says this. You will add days to the king's life. Oh, okay, there's the king again. His years will be from generation to generation. He will sit enthroned before God forever. So now we've changed to a king. Is this the same person or somebody different? Well, what did it just, what did it just say about him? It says that his years will be from what? Generation to generation. Did that happen to David? No. And then it also says that the king will sit enthroned before God forever and ever. Will that ever happen to David? Uh, no. If you said yes, um, we, we need to have a talk afterwards, okay? Um, who is this talking about then? The Messiah. This is Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. The king who is glad in God in Psalm 63, 11 is also then who? Jesus. If you still don't believe me, you're like, ah, oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. That kind of sounds weird. Check me on this. Do a search for every time David in his Psalms mentions the word king. You know what you're going to find? It always, 100% of the time, applies to the Messiah. Whoa. That's some proof right there, right? It all refers to Messiah. This is talking about Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. There is no question David is talking about Jesus, the Messiah, here in Psalm 63. And it's for good reason. When push comes to shove, here's what you need to know. Your greatest need, your only need, is not a comfortable life. 
It's not a fat 401k. It's not success or money or fame or happiness or whatever. Your only need is very simply this, Jesus. Jesus is all you need. Why though? What makes Jesus so special? What makes Jesus the pinnacle of this psalm? And the only thing that we ever need then? I'll tell you why. Look at the, look at the again, uh, at the verse here in its entirety. It says, but the king will be glad in God. Everyone who swears by him will boast for the mouths of those who speak lies will be closed. The psalm says, King Jesus will be glad in God. Why will he be glad in God? The implication is because God will give him some measure of victory, right? Some kind of victory. Well, when did God give Jesus victory? At the resurrection. At the resurrection. When God raised Jesus from the dead. And so because of this, it also says, all who swear by King Jesus will boast. Why will they boast? What's the implication there? They have been given the same victory. They also will experience a resurrection. This is the logic that's going on here, okay? And as a result, at the end of time, the mouths of those who speak lies will be closed. Why? Because there will be nothing left to critique. Jesus will leave no doubt that he is victorious and that there's nothing anyone else can do about it. No one can cast any doubt on it. No one will be able to say, oh, look, God, you missed a spot, right? No one is going to ever be able to say, well, look, God, you didn't save your people all the way, maybe most of the way, but you're still missing something over there. No, on that final day, God's victory will be sure and it will be complete. And that's what makes God all-saving. And if God's all-saving, he must then be all-sufficient. And if he's all-sufficient, he must be all-satisfying. This is why we saw in verse two, David used to go to the tabernacle. He came to see a powerful story, to witness a glorious message. What was that powerful story? What was that glorious message? I made you wait until now, but here it is. It's as verse three says, that loving kindness is better than life because it's a loving kindness that extends beyond life. What's a one word synonym for that? The gospel, the gospel. Psalm 63 ends on the climactic note of the gospel because at the end of the day, if you really want to know what makes God all satisfying, you have to realize he's all sufficient. And if you want to know what makes God all sufficient, you have to realize he's all saving. And if you want to know what makes God all saving, you look no further than the gospel, right? For in the gospel, God sent his only son, his most precious and dear possession to die in your place as a filthy sinner who does not deserve that. He loved you that much. Can you not then see that his love is that satisfying? 
He gives you eternal life. There is no message more glorious or powerful than that. There is no victory greater than that. What are you going to trust in? Things of this world? All of it's going to go away. And so, even though it sounds so cliche, it's really backed by scripture, we can rightfully say this, Jesus is all you need. He really is. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life, right? If you don't know Christ this morning, I want to encourage you to take a close look at the wilderness of your life. You may not even feel like you're in the wilderness, but guess what? You're in the wilderness. And it is my prayer that the Lord will open your eyes to see how devastating it is, how miserable it is. Because when you finally turn to Christ, then you can actually sing for joy in the wilderness just like David. If that's something that is impressed upon your heart, or maybe you're a believer here today and you're struggling I want to encourage you. We, have, we will have a, a few people over on the side here who will pray with you, counsel you, uh, just be of help to you in any way. John Newton is well known for his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton, as many of you know, worked on slave ships for many years before the Lord opened his eyes and he came to saving faith. For many years after his conversion, Newton turned his pen to, to write uh, many hymns, not just Amazing Grace, Uh, because there were many points in his life where he just really struggled with a wilderness, a deep, dark wilderness. And there's one particular hymn that's not as well known, but it's kind of made a resurgence in the last 15 years or so. In this hymn, Newton describes his own wilderness experience as a Christian and what God did in his life to help him there. And I want to read that to you. Some of you probably heard this. And you could probably even hear the tune in your, in your, in your head. Um, the language is a little old, okay? So bear with me, and I want you to listen very carefully, okay? This is big. This is huge. I love this. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, And he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. And now he's gonna answer his prayer, right? Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Whoa. God, what are you doing? Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace.
and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Sometimes when we ask the Lord to help us in the wilderness, he actually takes us further into it. But it's, it's always for this purpose. Don't forget that you may find he's all you need. Let's pray. Our Father, you really are all we need. And your Son, who died for us, is all we need. You have forgiven us of all of our sins. You have paid all of our debts. You have met every single one of our needs to this point. We're still here. We're still alive. And even the day when you don't meet our physical need will be the best day that you will carry us to our greatest need, which will be fulfilled in Christ together with you. That's our hope. Father, help us to aspire to lean into that hope in the darkest moments of our lives and even in the brightest moments, lest we trust in ourselves. And may we say with the Apostle Paul that your grace is sufficient for us for your power is perfected in weakness. Bless us, O God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.